Frank Neufeld was art director, director of design and production, creative director, vice president of publishing, as well as member of the board of directors at McClellan and Stewart from 1963 to 1982. Neufeld has been recognized as one of the most significant book designers in Canada, working first with adult and later with children's titles. He has designed over 650 books. So they tell me, yeah. And won something like 170. Awards. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Okay. Why book design? Did it come to you? Or did you come to it? It actually came to me. I had started in theatre, stage design, and I was a member of LATP, which is London Artist Theatre Productions. At that time, Emlyn Williams, well-known Welsh actor, was semi-retired, and he was a major consultant to the group. And I studied theatre design at the Central School of Arts and Craft just after the war was finished. I studied stage design, but... Everything persuaded me, including everybody, that maybe I'd be happier doing something else, such as being a butcher. Or um, I did appear in the theatre a couple of times until the theatre said you'd be better off staying backstage. Then, once the war started in Israel, I was one of the volunteers. Whilst I was in Israel, I got hurt. I did a few drawings, and the next thing I knew, they'd made me a war artist there. I went back to Central and decided to study uh, illustration, and then came back to Canada in uh, 1954. Maybe you can draw some, some parallels between stage design and, uh, and book design. Well, I can draw one parallel. Those are my extended prelims. There were two films that I saw, Man with the Golden Arm and Drowned the World in 80 Days. Actually, in those days, the credits came before the movie, not as we have them today, that they come after the movie, so if nobody needs to stay and look at them, <laughs> the people can leave. Both of them had vi visual prelims around the world in 80 days, had all sorts of scenes, a travelogue, beautifully drawn, with names appearing up above. And the man with the golden arm started, Saul Bass, I think, did it. So these were illustrations that were filmed? Yeah, they were drawing, beautiful drawings. His were drawings of an arm juxtaposed in any number of positions with the cast and other credits put in very nicely. And I thought to myself, why can't we do this in books? I brought in a couple of uh, my favorite covers of yours and books. And if we look at Balls for a One-Armed Juggler, for example, by Irving Layton, that's what happens. You open the book and... You have no idea why they put this dirty spot on yeah. this page. You that's think it's, it's maybe a printing mistake. Yes. You also see that the page is a different, it's a tan color. Yes. Why is that? And then, oh, wait a minute, that little dot is getting bigger. So maybe the first one wasn't an error. And finally, we see there's... Irving Layton's photograph within a ball. Yes. It's doing exactly, and here he is again, a different uh, image of his face, with the dot looking more like a ball. It's quite a few different pages, isn't it? 
And it's doing exactly what you've just said. Yeah. Well, that, that's how it all started. With the films. Yeah. I should mention that this book was designed in 1960 or 1959, and that period of, say, 1958 to 62 was extraordinary. What was going on in your life that, I mean, there was so much imaginative power? I think I can explain it. I think I can explain it. One, McClelland and Stewart, mainly thanks to Hugh Kane, who was the vice president, was an amazing company to work for. When they took me on as designer, they said, you will be the designer. We're not going to tell you what to design. We may not always like what you design, and we may not let it go through, but we're not going to tell you how to design the book. There's a sort of a joy in that freedom. Yeah, and two, which is really more important, nobody knew who the heck I was, which meant that I didn't get important books to do. Eventually, unfortunately, in a peculiar way, I was accepted as the man to give coffee table books to, that he could be trusted, that he knew the mathematics of book design. Here's one. This was one of the later ones. The Treasures of the National Archives of Ottawa. Money was absolutely no object in uh, this one. The only thing that was objectionable in this no object was that I lost some of my freedom. I couldn't allow myself to play funny games with them. It would have been personally ostentatious. Bringing too much attention to the designer. Thank you. Exactly. Or even daring to make a personal statement. And literally, since books were now costing $40-$50 a piece, I didn't feel, and nobody else did either, willing to play games. If we move back then to your training, who influenced you more than anyone else? At Central School, there were two people. One was Anthony Gross, who was an illustrator and a superbulous Forsyth Saga is probably his best-known book. Took me under his wing by beating me up every time I came into his life doing studio, but would then take me for a beer and start talking to me afterwards. And the making wonderful children's book illustrator, Maurice Sendak. Why? Simply because both of these people in the work that they did do emotionally to the subject rather than drawing unemotionally to the marketplace. What about emotionally to the content versus logically to the content? That, of course, yeah, that has to be. First and foremost, it's an author's book, and I think this has to be remembered. But what also has to be remembered is that just as an author doesn't need literary direction, Mm. nor should an illustrator need art direction from an author. Especially from an author. Yes. They're not experts. It's not so much that. What happens is that more often than not, the vision that the illustrator finds is far removed from the vision that the author has produced. When an author lets go of their book, it becomes the reader's book. Yes, so very nicely put. Yes. The same sort of thing holds true absolutely with the, with the illustrator or the design of books. But again, it's your book 
when you read it, and the way you uh, design it is your interpretation of those words. It shouldn't be any other way, I guess. I think now's a good time to come in with... I didn't design this book. It was beautifully designed by Will Guter, but it's Bernard Schutz Grasshopper, which is a very intense study of games, life, and utopia. This is probably my most favorite illustration commission, and I've done an awful lot of. I asked if I could combine drawings with text, and I would like to render the text in my own cartography. Bernard Schutz, who's the author, agreed to this, and we actually did meet. You know, what this reminds me of is once an author has written their book, and they get into talks with a movie company. Most authors will just say, okay, or many will, give me the money and do your thing, and whatever comes of it, comes of it. It seems to me that it wouldn't matter if you talk with the author or not. In fact, it might be better that you don't talk to them. What do you think? Well, I have a bad reputation as far as authors are concerned. McMaster University uh, set up an evening and I was on a panel about book design and illustration and the inevitable questions from the audience came along. One lady stood up and said, I understand you don't like working with authors. With Dennis Lee. No, that, uh, yeah. I said, no, I like talking with authors, if I like the author, but I think generally speaking I prefer working with an editor who objectively views this from the book's point of view, where the author views it from the author's point of view. What is the book's point of view? The message is the book's point of view. Regardless of the content of the book, there is some sort of message. This is balls for a one-armed juggler. When I look at the cover, there are three different shadings of Irving Layton's profile. message that comes there to me, partly, is this man has got a healthy ego. Yes, notice that the middle one is red. And who is so red? Well, he looks like the devil. Satan. Yeah, the one on the extreme right is the most benign one. And the one on the extreme left is a very dogmatic one. It's a boy, I know what I want. Very appealing. Yeah. yeah, I loved Irving. So what, in your opinion, was the message of this book, of poems? Oh gosh, earlier you told me that I designed some 650 books, <laughs> if you think I remember. From the standpoint of the book designer, what generically are the things that you might look for when you read the text? Okay, that's hard to answer. I can tell you what I felt about Leighton, both as a person as a poet. And this is primarily what influenced how you designed Even the, the typeface. Would you say that your interaction with the author and their works leaves you with some kind of feeling? Yeah, and not necessarily the author and his work, sometimes just his work. Because I really stayed away, if I possibly could, from authors. One, I didn't want to like them before I read the manuscript. And two, which would be even worse... uh, really didn't want to hate them. You know, that's exactly what George Orwell said. He didn't want to meet the authors because it would influence the way he reviewed their work. Exactly. I I must say, on the whole, I've been really lucky. 
Of course, I've been difficult to work with. I admit this now. I mean, late in my 80s, doesn't really matter. No one's going to come to me to design a book anymore. You say the feeling. I'm looking at Leighton, two of my favorite books of yours, The Swinging Flesh and Balls for a One-Armed Juggler. There's black and gold and red that's quite prominent in both of them. Why is that? Well, the black and the red I've explained. I thought those were definitely uh, latent colors. In the swinging flesh, any introduction of a pale color would have been completely wrong because they were so strong. Let me find one other book of latents for you. Mm-hmm. And I really did like working on poetry books. And this was an, a completely different latent. doesn't look anything like the devil there. He looks like a very staid, conservative businessman, but someone who's laughing at himself sitting on a This has become rooster. a wealthy latent. I like the way you're covering them in paper. You don't cover them in uh, plastic like, uh, like most people do. No, here's another an interesting one where I purposely chose a paper that was a little bit transparent because I wanted the next page to come through. And this is Tête Blanche, Marie the Mad Shadows. Okay, so let's stick on this. What is it about the, her? This looks like capillaries and arteries that lead into a, a lung and purple and a sort of an orangey red. You're trying to convey your feeling for the message that the text brings out and or the individual that you've been in connection with. But there's also the commercial aspect as well. Yeah. And that is to try and get attention. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. This was before the days of chapters where you're not surrounded by each person being knowledgeable about books, but you had small bookstores where the owner was always evident, where the owner had probably read most of the books that were being sold, certainly knew of, if not knew, the author, and who could respond and guide. Also, in a peculiar way, simply because it wasn't mass-produced, the readership was much more knowledgeable. Rather than coming into a store, simply looking for anything that might strike the fancy of the person they were going to give the book to. So how does that affect the way you design it then? We had not yet reached the stage where we were influenced not to design the book. What does that mean? It means that sometimes the design of Red Carpet, of the Marie-Claire Blais, might have become a bit intimidating for the new audience who actually said, well, this isn't really a book to be serious about, simply because they've come in to browse. Did did I answer that? No. I didn't. I didn't think I did. (laughs) You're saying what? That back then there are certain things that went into the design of this, that today, because the bookseller isn't as knowledgeable about the authors and their books, that would be different. What is that? No, it was more that at the heyday 
of things. For better or worse, I assumed that the buyer knew, or at least knew of, the author and had come specifically for that book. And I could design the author rather than design uh, the gratuity. So in other words, it was more about the character of the author and the work than it was about trying to sell the book or grab attention. Yeah, it was more that I didn't think it was necessary that I had a much more knowledgeable buyership. So that gave you the freedom to do what? Exactly what I did, to play these games. The games, for example, with the balls. Yes. One of my favorite books. Yeah, it's spectacular. That that cover is Sheila Watson's yeah. The Double Hook. is, Yeah. Because of the game that it plays, the way that you get the feel of water with just these increasingly large, thicker lines. I suppose that's another thing. It takes up pages that may not be taken up yeah. these days. Yeah, that's exactly it. Now you've, you've put your finger on it exactly. Because it would cost more to produce this. I'm speaking with Frank Neufeld, one of Canada's best, most honoured book designers and illustrators. One of the reasons that I'm doing these series of interviews is to try to encourage a new generation of book collectors. If you were collecting your own work, what would you collect then? If you couldn't get it all, what would you focus on? What are your favorites? First of all, my most favorite illustration commission has been Grasshopper, The Bernard Suits. It was published in 78. And it's difficult to say I've done so many. One of the most interesting books was the Olympic books that I did a few years ago. What Olympics were those? Both Winter and Summer Olympics. The Canadian Summer Olympics in Montreal. In 76, prior to that? The Sapporo one, which was the small one, so they could have the total both winter and summer. And it appeared in three different editions. There was a German publisher who came to Canada Uh just to do the Olympic books. I'm about the only person in Canada, I suppose, who would say this. My favorite author... Pierre Burton. And we worked very well together. So you designed most of his books? Not only that, we did the Canadian Centennial series together. Did you know that? No. No? I've got two. I'll show you another one. Sure. We did a a whole series of books. One of them was Great Canadian Paintings. Ah, yes, okay. And if you look at the title page, you'll see paintings... Elizabeth Kilborn and Frank Neufeld. What happened there was, there was going to be Elizabeth Kilborn with her husband, who did the research, some research. In the choice of the, of the uh, paintings? She had some sort of malady about a month into it. Pierre called a meeting. I was told to select the paintings. You chose the works, plus you laid them out, of course. Yeah. I designed the book. Full of color. Beautiful images, yeah, and nicely printed too. Uh, well, that was printed by Mondadori in Verona, Italy. Montreal was going to print it because we were in partnership, or Jack was in partnership with the weekend people, and they completely messed it up, and we had to scrap the whole thing, or they had to scrap, yeah. and we moved it to Italy, and the Italians did a wonderful job. 
your recommendation for a collection of books would be the Canadian Centennial Library. Yeah. Global. We printed, unheard of in Canada, 80,000 copies of each book. The nice thing is, they're probably pretty easy to get a hold of. They were. And yeah. they are still today, I would imagine. No. You can't find them? No. No. Why not? They were all mail order. But you can get them in used bookstores, I would imagine. Yes, I imagine you should be able to. Why should these be collected? They're Canadiana, and they're very good Canadiana. Subjects range from the making of a nation to Canadian humour. How many of them all together, roughly? I think there were eight or nine. There's some interesting things in there. Things that had never been tried. That was Pierre. You mean he liked to push the envelope? Take a look at the text. Just look, don't bother to read. What do you notice about them? Uh, well, I noticed that at the bottom there's, there's a lot of italics. No. You'll be amazed when I tell you. Take a look at the last line of each caption and each piece of text. Doesn't the last line come to the very end? Yes, it aligns an inch within the edge of the page. And that was a Newfeld Burton decision. I said, I don't know how the hell to do this. And Pierre said, I do. When we write it, you will find words in parentheses. And those you can use if you need them, or you can throw away if you... Oh, isn't that great? There are no short lines. All the lines go all the way across in each case. Which has never been tried again. (laughs) Believe me. So, we started off by talking about why book design. I didn't really get an answer. You were a war artist. And went back. Someone took me aside and said, you know, your work looks more like an illustrator's. Try illustration. And I said, I don't really want to be an illustrator. I said, try it for one term. And suddenly it all became clear, especially when I took typographic design. Things that I'd sort of done by feel suddenly became logical. What's the first book that you designed? It's a book called Never a Day So Bright, a Canadian book, published by Nelson Canada. And so from there, you did more with Nelson, and then... Quite a few. I arrived in Canada with an Edwardian suit, with upturned cuffs, Ah, drainpipe pants, and I bought a 1937 Chev, which is all that I could afford. And Bernard Nearing said, all right, this was with my second or third book for them. He said, I'm going to give you a good advance, enough that you can buy yourself a decent suit, one that doesn't have upturned sleeves. We don't trust artists, he said. And two, leave your car three blocks away from the other publishing houses. (laughs) I I always had somebody who grandfathered me in my early days, which was very good. Is there something that you wanted to say about your philosophy or about your books, or is there anything that you you left unsaid that you want to say? No, not really. I I, I, I do want to say that we're quite lucky that we have some excellent children's book publishers, to name just a very few, Groundwood, of course, which I think is head and shoulders. On the whole, books for young people 
are being handled really quite nicely and really quite well, except for the area of poetry books for children, where the relationship between the visual and the written is slightly misunderstood. Common explanation is that an author is really exactly like a composer and that the composer's piece has to be played the way that the composer means it to. But that isn't really quite the truth because the composer and the music start or emanate and finish with exactly the same thing. Music is produced admittedly written on pieces of paper by the composer, but those scribbles are interpreted exactly. Uh, of course, there are differences. If you uh, take certain violinists, for instance, they're not going to play the same piece in exactly the same way, but essentially the same notes will be played. It's just a matter of nuances. Emphasis. And yeah, but the language of the book the written and the visual are two entirely different things. In music, you hear what has been written and played. Illustrations are not read by an audience. It's emotionally attached in a completely different uh, manner to the audience. Not only that, with music, the transition is very orderly. With illustrations in a children's book, there is no orderly uh, continuance because the illustrations have all been looked at before the book is read by the person who buys the book, by the children. Yes, there's almost like there's two avenues to understanding. First and foremost, it must be the author. But secondly, it certainly works if you take a historical novel or if you take an epic poem like the Mort Dafer, say. But if they're short poems which are unrelated one to the next, seemingly, then the illustration has its own duty to perform, or responsibility. It certainly can't be an echo of the written. That just can become very banal. It has to convey a certain unity, despite the fact that all of the pieces are disparate and different. It has to have a relationship of sorts, but whether the relationship is close, such as mother to son, or distant, such as third cousin... It's up to the artist, and the way the artist interprets it. Or the editor. The editor guiding the artist? Not guiding the artist, but responding to the intent, the artist's intent. Mm. Selecting? Not so much selecting as allowing or not permitting, of saying no. You, you have veered too far. I think that the illustrator has to agree to. But certainly, and this has always amazed me, because some very good children's book poets have done this. Why would they want their message repeated visually? Yeah. The message has been made. And by repeating it visually, you deny the child's flight of fancy. Well, you make it more difficult. Well, what you do is, that if it's not a repetition, if it's a different interpretation, then it's up to the child to try and make the relationship between the two of them. Okay, let me see. Mm -hmm. I think it's in here. An obvious collecting category for your work would be children's design and illustration versus adults. Another one would be fiction versus yeah. 
poetry. Another one could be non-fiction on its own. No, it isn't in there, but here's an interesting one where you can stay with it. A pair of pants. Johnny came from England, Jackie came from France. They went to see a wise man about a pair of pants. One said they're too long, one said they're too little. The wise man took the pair of pants and ripped them up the middle. Now each has got a pant leg, each is freezing too, and yet it seemed the only thing that anyone could do. And the Mountie is very important. The Mountie has got a big pair of shears. And an umbrella. That's right, so he's made to look British. Both these characters are putting their noses up and walking away from each other. And how foolish they are. And yet the Mountie's sanctioning it. He did it. There's all sorts of interesting things going on there, aren't there? Actually, the umbrella is more to stop the excrement from hitting him. <laughs> That's right. He did something. He doesn't look too guilty, though. No. No, no. But we've only just now learned that Mounties really don't care. <laughs> just to, to conclude the idea is that this illustration and that what you're saying is lacking in children's poetry and illustration is contentious design that's open to multiple interpretation that stimulates thought as opposed to something that's sort of literal and repetitive is that what you're saying? is that what you're getting at? well n not exactly uh, let me give you the objection to that illustration, the fact that the Mountie wasn't mentioned. Yet I think the Mountie is quite important as far as the children are concerned. Well, it makes it yeah. essentially Canadian. Yeah. Whereas the poem you wouldn't necessarily... I hadn't thought of that, to be honest. That's the only clue, if you're a child in England, that's the only clue that this is about Canada. The illustration brings more information. Yeah information that can be interpreted in a variety of different ways. This is a very important series that you oh, that. designed, and this is the, the New Canadian Library. Yep. You basically drew profiles of the authors on the front cover. Yep. They think that was launched in the late 50s. Yep. Very distinctive. <clears throat> we then changed it once I got kicked upstairs, simply because it seemed too expensive by that time commission them. The drawings. Yeah, and it had gone on long enough and it simply needed to change. You would have done these profiles, they're not quite caricatures. No, they're just Famous drawings. Canadian authors. Yeah. And what a great series that would be to collect. This was number five, N5, the fifth book. That was a very good series and it sold like hotcakes. Mind you, it was very expensive. Look at the price. It's on the cover. They were a dollar each. <laughs> well, you could buy a bottle of Coca-Cola for five cents, so uh, it puts it in perspective, I guess. Great. Well, thank you very much again for your time, and thank you for bringing so much imagination and color to Canadian literature over the last 50 years. Well, a large number of us from that time have been forgotten. I don't mean myself, there are other designers. Well, you know, in a way it's, it's saddening, but it's also something that's very exciting for a prospective collector because there are so many fascinating collecting opportunities available in Canada that haven't been exploited yet.
Frank Neufeld is a Canadian book designer and illustrator who has designed or illustrated more than 650 books for publishers in Canada, the United Kingdom, United States, and Israel. He is a former vice president of publishing at McClellan and Stewart. His memoir, Drawing on Type, was published by the Porcupine's Quill in 2008. Thanks again.